Hello team and welcome to episode 350 of the Simply Fit podcast. In today's episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Molly Carmel. Molly is an addiction and eating disorder specialist, author, and host of the What You're Craving podcast. After decades of battling her own challenges with addiction and disordered eating, Molly found herself in a position where she was feeling helpless and hopeless. Her battle with these challenges started with her visiting a nutritionist at just seven years old and ended up with her tipping the scales at 325 pounds. Molly has since turned that around with the approach that she calls breaking up with sugar and has healed her relationship with food and now helps others to do the same. In this episode, you can expect to learn what breaking up with sugar truly looks like, whether we should be looking to reintroduce sugar and flour in the future, along with what Molly's advice would be for the next generation and how parents can give their children the absolute best chance of being healthy and having a solid relationship with food. So without further ado, Molly Carmel. Molly Carmel, welcome to the show. How are you today? Oh, Elliot, I'm so so happy to be here mostly. That's my main feeling today. excited. We are happy to have you here. I'm very excited to get into this conversation today. But for those listeners who may have not come across yourself before, can you give us a little bit of background and context on who you are and what it is that you do? Yeah, so I am, um, what am I? I am a, um, I'm an eating disorders and addictions therapist. Um, and I'm also like an author and a podcaster and a healer. I'm all sorts of things. But the, my main job is being an eating disorders therapist and addiction therapist and coach. And um, I work largely with people who are really at the really at the hands in the air. I just don't know what to do anymore. Stage right have really tried everything everywhere and are exhausted. Um, and um, and I wrote a book uh, about three years ago called, called Breaking Up with Sugar. And so a lot of the work that I do in being a food, a, a, an eating disorder and food therapist is I work with people who have unhealthy relationships with like sugar and flour. And um, and I think and I, as we were talking about before the show, don't you always wish that they could be with us before the show? <laughs> It's always the best bits, right? It should be some behind the scenes. Yeah. But the the other thing I think is, uh, uh, and and I'll get to this in a second, but is um, you know really breaking up with diet culture, which is I think a really I think it's one of the hardest things to to do because it's it's a uh, it's in our blood, it's in our veins in many ways. Uh, it's it's so cultural and it's so traumatic. And um, the shortest way I can say that is that the, the way I got into my profession is uh, is the darkest, worst, you know, most tragic way, which was, you know, paving my own path, um, the quickest version of it. You know, I was born upside down with an umbilical cord around my neck, nine pounds, 12 ounces, you know, so it started out really complicated. I have... Um, I have a whole family full of addiction and depression and obesity and eating disorders. So, and then when I was um, almost three years old, my father died very traumatically. Um, he drove off a cliff. Sorry to hear that. And so I really, thank you. I really have, you know, all the precursors, all the vulnerabilities for somebody to walk into an eating disorder, addiction, things like that. I have, a, I have all of the, I have the the biological piece I have the, and I, Oh, one more thing. I was born like without any emotional sunscreen, right? I'm, I'm extra. I was born extra with my feelings. Right. So when you think about like, well, what's the makeup of somebody who's going to struggle like this? It's I'm exactly it. And, um, 
And so, yeah, by the time I was seven, uh, you know, all the adults in my life were super concerned about my relationship with food. I got sent to a nutritionist at the age of seven. Uh, two things about that. Number one, I remember, really remember being at this nutritionist thinking like, I don't understand how under, I don't understand. She's telling me to eat chicken the size of my fist. Like, I can't stop eating. Like, why are they, you know, like, this, this isn't helping me. It taught me how to hide food. It taught me how to be more stealth. Like, that's for sure. And it really started this obsession. And I would say close to addiction with like with dieting and diet culture and everything like that. And then, you know, I was at Weight Watchers camp at 13. And then, you know, and then eventually I think around my 20s, I mean, I had some exercise bulimia in my 20s where I was exercising off everything that I was eating. And then, you know, around my 22 or 23, I, I just lost the I lost any capacity I had for restriction. Like and like I just couldn't do it anymore. And that's when I uh, I turned to close to 325 pounds. And at that time, it was very, very old. It was a long time ago. And it was when they were first starting bariatric surgery. And um, my grandmother paid out of pocket for my bariatric surgery. I was pretty suicidal at the time. So I was just like, all right, fine. I don't care. I didn't, I really didn't care if I lived or I died. And wouldn't it be amazing, Elliot, if that was the end of the story? But it isn't. I ate my way through that surgery. I had that surgery, ate my way past it mostly. Um, all this time being in graduate school, like when I was 13 years old and I was at that Weight Watchers camp, something inside of me, like I really got tapped by divine in that moment. And something inside of me was like, you need to help people figure this out. Because that Weight, Weight, Watcher, Weight Watchers camps, they were just like running us and feeding us. And I was having the time of my life and I would go back after every summer and gain all my weight back plus more. So I was really trapped in that cycle that we all know so well, like what we know now about what it does to your endocrine system. Don't get me started, but I'm actually just talking about that emotional piece, right? Like fitting into your skinny jeans and then having the button pop up in home economics class in ninth grade, like the shame and the less than and all the depression and the fear, it's just, it's really bad for your personality, you know? And so uh, I gained that weight back. I was an eating disorders therapist at the time, um, gaining my weight back, hand over fist, trying to help people with their relationship with food. It's a very uh, spiritually bankrupt way to live. I would not uh, encourage anybody to do that. <laughs> do your healing first and then go be a therapist. And I was really scared, to be honest. I was just really scared. I was scared for my job. I mean, it was really like a sort of like a Maslow. Like I was scared for my security. Like I, there's no way I could have kept this up. And I didn't really know what to do. I had this bariatric surgery. I mean, I was kind of out of ideas, you know. And I actually started to attend some 12-step groups. It was, it was, that's not how I healed. But I just want to say, starting with some connection and some anonymous connection, I just cried in the back of the room. People held me. They were strangers. It was really beautiful. I, I think what they say that the opposite of addiction is connection. I hate that it's true, but there's really nothing more true than that. Then the craziest thing happened. My brother went on paleo. He went on the paleo diet and he just started like dripping pounds off. And I was just like out of ideas and I love a good diet. And who doesn't, right? <laughs> And I was like, well, if like Mikey can lose all this weight, then like, I'm going to try that too. And I, so I stopped eating sugar and I stopped eating flour and, um, two really important things happened for me. Uh, the first one was that I went through enormous detox and I had never really detoxed before from a diet. And I was an addictions person at the time. So I was kind of like, well, this is curious. 
by the way, not thinking like I was very well trained and I never like thought of diabetes. Like I just, the blind spots that come, you know, with denial are just, it's so fat. It's so fantastic. The mind. And then the second thing that happened, honestly, it was like, I just started feeling like so different and so hopeful and so much better and stopped having craving. It, it happened in like two weeks time that, um, I walked into my office and I was running because this is how I was trained. I was running like a calorie counting, like right down your food, like very low fat clinic forever. It's how I was trained. And I walked in one day and I switched the whole thing around. And by the way, it goes without saying that there are people in my clinic who are struggling like me, like holding on for dear life to their like honey mustard pretzel binges and their frosted at the time, right? The smart, smart snack wells of it all. And everybody started getting well. It was bonkers. It was like, everybody was seeing black and white. Everybody started seeing color. And then I went and got, like, I found a mentor and I started to get very well trained. And then I got really into the food addiction world, but the food addiction world is a very rigid, rigid, rigid world. And in many ways, how people experience the food addiction world is like a diet. Like it's, and it's almost worse because it's like orthorexic, right? It's saying, or orthorexic being like kind of scared of foods. It's saying, bring your scale and never have this. And I'm like, well, this doesn't, I have a big life. I have a lot to do. I have big hopes, big dreams. And like, this is going to work for me. And so I took on this kind of approach of, well, first of all, let me tell you one thing. On Elliot's podcast, you're going to have so many people talking about so many different things. There's, there's one piece of data that is unanimous across all planes. And here's what it is, honestly. The number one determinant of success is self-determination. That's that's data-driven. That's not Molly Carmel-driven. And what I mean by that is to say that us making our own decision about what is best for us is the thing that decides whether or not we're going to be successful, right? So when someone's sitting there saying, well, you've got to bring your scale or you're going to die if you eat that sugar, like that does not nothing to enhance self-determination. It does nothing to support change, not long-lasting change. It's why I'm... Um, I'm a little bit opposed to people who coach solely from a space of that they've done it too. I just, it, I, I don't know. I, I, well, I have a lot of things to say about a lot of things. So maybe another podcast for another day. But so basically I started to work with people in this very different way, which was a harm reduction food addiction model, having people make decisions on their own. And uh, a lot of what we call acceptance and commitment therapy, which is finding your own values inside of you and then acting off of the values a lot of dialectical behavioral therapy, which is my main training, which is, um, you know, skill-based and finding the middle and mindfulness-based stuff and helping people just to create like relationships with food that they could live in harmony with. A lot of, for a lot of people who have struggled with dieting and diet addiction, they burned out their endocrine systems. So they are really sensitive to sugar. And so breaking up a sugar really worked for a lot of people. A lot of people who come to me sort of on their last legs, it's a given that they're at least sensitive, if not addicted to sugar and flour. But I've treated lots of people lots of different ways. And I, that's, so that's the story. And then I, I've been, I haven't had sugar and flour for over 13 years, which I think is absolutely crazy. And I would, it, no part of me would want to, pick it up again, which I actually think is the craziest thing of all of it. Is that, that's the shortest version of the story I can tell you, Elliot. That is a very well-packed short version of the story. And there's a lot for me to unpack there. And I want to go right back to the beginning as well, because of what I find with many people when you start to feel back the layers is that you realize that 
the food addiction, the binge eating, whatever challenges that someone is having with food all stems from some type of difficulty that they experienced in the young years, typically. And as you mentioned, you were the perfect candidate for that in many of the unfortunate things you experienced in your childhood. And you mentioned that you, I'm not sure if this is going to be part of your story as well, but you mentioned you were took to a nutritionist and that was the thing that didn't really do any help at all. Do you think if you had taken to a therapist or a psychologist, things could have turned out a little bit different? My honest answer is no, because I think what I really needed was like the love and accept. I think I needed to not be pawned off onto a professional. Like that's fair. There's a hundred thousand dollar check somewhere at a therapist where I've like forgiven my mother and like eighteen shaman where I've like thrown up my guts and forgiveness exercises, but. I think what I really, and it's interesting if you think about it from an eating disorder perspective, right? It's a disease of nourishment and nurturing. If you really want to get to the, if we really just want to get, you and I like to get to the root of things, you know how we are, Elliot. And I think, you know, I think with the trauma I experienced, what I'd like to say first and foremost is my mother was absolutely, my mother was so, my mother was so unmatched for what she got with me. And I think at the time, like, I was born in 1977. People didn't even go to there. It wasn't like it is now. Like they, and so, but, uh, but I think, but I'm very cautious when uh, parents want to send their children to me. I actually, I mean, the hoops people have to jump through in order for me to see a child or have anyone in my practice see a child, it's almost impossible because I think they can't do much with the information. They don't have car keys, right? Like, so it's a really challenging, um, situation, I guess, I guess I, yeah, I, if they had to send me somewhere, I guess I wish they would have sent me to a therapist. I wish they would have just said that they loved me and took, taken and nourished me and nurtured me a little differently. But, you know, it's asking them to be taller than they are, I guess. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I love the quote and it said, we've been broken by a generation that never learned how to heal. Oh my God. <laughs> Why is that the first time I ever heard that? Yes. We, I need to write that down. Oh my God. Wow. <laughs> Please do. I can't, exactly right. I was going to say, I can't take credit for it. I did hear it from someone else, but it was something that has hit home. And I was like, that is such a good and big piece of forgiveness because when you recognize that they didn't have the access, of course, everyone is responsible for doing their own work. But at the same time, I think we definitely have advantages now that maybe those 30, 40 or 50 years ago do not have. And I think it's a, yeah, it's a fair way to look at things and it does help with that forgiveness part. And something I do want to jump onto as well, and this is the big part of the question that I'm very curious to hear about, because obviously sugar is the thing that we want to break up with here. But I do wonder, is was sugar really the problem? Or had you experienced that love and acceptance that you really needed and was nurtured and nourished in the best possible way, not from a nutritional standpoint, but maybe from a home life standpoint, would sugar have ended up being the demon in this story? Or would it have actually just played a smaller role than it has done uh, ever since your early childhood years? Yeah, I mean, it's a hard Monday morning quarterback question. I, I, so I think for me, I, my guess uh, so first of all, like addictions to progressive illness. So I think by the time I'm 31 and doing it, it's like, you know, the, the cucumber has turned into a pickle. The pickle cannot turn into a cucumber. Although I have to say there's some research, and I agree with this to some extent, that extended time off of sugar, you can reintroduce some stuff back. I think there's stuff that I, my endocrine system couldn't tolerate in the beginning that I can tolerate now, things like Ezekiel bread or something like that. I actually think it's 
hard to say, but I actually think given my genetics, I think I was born like sensitive to everything because I also was very sensitive to alcohol. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of sensitive across the board. I, and I'm not, yeah. I mean, so I, I don't really, it's hard. It's a hard question to answer, but I think for on a general scope, it's why I really don't like parents to talk about food with their kids in any other way than this is healthy. I like, you know, when I meet a parent wanting to put their kid in treatment, I I ask them about their relationship with food. If they have an unhealthy relationship, we ask them to heal it first. So, because I think kids just watch, I ask them how they talk about their body. Like I, there's, there's questions you want to help parents to understand because they're the ones that spend the most time with the kid. I, I think putting a kid in treatment is really, it's, it's a, it's a risky move at, at minimum. Yeah, I completely agree. And if there are any parents right now, uh, recognizing challenges with their children's nutrition, what would your recommendation be? I mean, my recommendation might actually be before you even answer is to go work on their relationship with food themselves. And that might have a pretty decent knock on effect to the child, right? My number one, my two, my number one recommendation is, or my number one question is, what does your relationship with food and body look like? Is there any places that you can find more neutrality? Do that yesterday. If you're really seeing that your kid struggles with food, I would read the book Sugar Proof. I think it is by Michael Gorin. I think it is one of the most fabulous books on managing your children's sugar intake in the like a 0% eating disordered way. I think he's a, he's just one of the best researchers and clinicians in this practice. You should have him on your show. He's wonderful. I read his book and I was like, thank God. And the only, the other person uh, who I think is really, really great at this is Robert Lustig. He writes another really good book about kids. There's two really great middle path. Neither one of these guys is saying, take all the sugar out of your house. They're just offering some really middle path, gentle, almost and empowering because you don't want to take things away without giving them back. A hundred percent. And I want to go back to your road to recovery. You mentioned the 12 step program and you mentioned obviously having 17 years away from sugar or flour. What did that road to recovery look like for you? Was there setbacks along the way? How long would you say you're fully healed now? Or would you still say it's an ongoing journey? I say I'm fully healed and it's an ongoing journey. (laughs) I think they're both true. I think I'm really, I mean, but I'm a seeker. I think you are too. I think anybody, I think I'm a seeker. So I think I'm sort of always willing to open up more and, and in my own spiritual belief system, just become closer to something greater than me. So I'm always doing something. I would be, I'm not made that way. I was struggling with food forever and ever, right? So I, you know, I was, I've been, I was at Weight Watchers Camp when I was 13 years old. So um, by the time, and I think I just, I had this urgency of really losing my job and gaining all this weight back. It was so urgent that the minute I figured the sugar thing out, they say this thing in the, in, in the other 12 step rooms, like that it's like you've surrendered, like you're doing the relapsing before you get in. So it isn't like it's been, it wasn't a straight shot. Like, oh, I walked in and it was so easy. It was more like I walked in and I walked out and I walked in and I walked out. It's interesting in those 12 step groups, I would go to them and I would be like a mess. Cause I have like every eating time, I'd be like throwing up and binging and doing all. And I go in and I'd be like on my knees and I'm like, oh, I hate myself. I hate my life. And they would like love me and blah, blah. And I'd be like, okay, cool. Bye. Thanks guys. 
And then I'd like go on my merry way and like, you know, addiction and eating disorders don't care. So then it would come back again and it would be worse. And I'd be like, oh God, I hate myself. I hate my life. And they'd hug me. And then like one day, like the eighth time I did that, by the way, I'm an addiction therapist this whole time. Like I'm saying blind spots are amazing. And I was like, I think I might have to go to this place when I feel good too. (laughs) Like I couldn't use it as an ER. Because I think that's how people use diets, right? Like once I just get to the end of this, like then I can eat what I want. It's like, it's that's just like not the deal. So I think that's what I learned in the time before I fully surrendered was like, oh, like this is a relationship. Like this is a lifetime venture. And I need to change my relationship with how I experience that or else I'm just going to be on this, on this, horrible, uh, like horrible, you know, uh, treadmill never getting anywhere in my life. And I have to say, like, at the time I was in my 30, like all my friends were getting, like all these things were happening for everyone else. And like, I was not, I was not thriving. I was like mildly suicidal, not thriving. And I think a lot like the externals of my life looked really good, but the internals of my life were like real bottomed out. And so The other thing I want to say, which I think is maybe the most important thing I'll say on your podcast as an eating disorders therapist, is that eating disorders are marked by times of relapse. Like, that's the name of the game. You have to eat, and so it's going to be imperfect. It's actually so there have been maybe three or four times in 13 years where I've had to up my treatment. During COVID, I had to go into treatment with the nutritionist that wrote the meal plan of my book. I mean, there have been, and I said, just in the spirit of shame, I said, Nikki, I'm, I'm not telling one person that I'm doing this. No one needs to know that I'm struggling right now. Like I'm going to deny this whole community. And like, you know, like after the second session, I'm like writing a newsletter about it, like doing a web and, you know, and everyone's so relieved. I had long COVID. I put on a I put on like 10 or 15 pounds during that. I had to shut. I mean, I it, and I've found for me that each time uh, that I've had these, you know, sort of off-road adventures from my recovery, first of all, it's helped so many people to feel normal and human. It's consistent with the research. And I have to say it has added to my self-compassion and my compassion for others in ways that I didn't even know possible, honestly. Yeah, absolutely. I think... People just mostly want to see that you're a human. And quite often, if the expert is also experiencing those things, it gives people a little bit of comfort, even more than a little bit of comfort and permission to actually feel those things themselves, right? They're like, well, they, in my eyes, are pretty damn perfect. They've got all their stuff figured out. And, you know, I'm just aspiring to be like this person. And then all of a sudden they're they're like, ah, well, if they experience it as well, then that gives me a little bit of breathing space, a little bit of room to say, actually, it's not too bad that I fell off, right? So I think it's great that they had you to relate to in that situation. Yeah. And I think even with like long COVID, like, and I was gaining this weight, I was like, I I probably should like get back on my plan. And I remember I was so sick. I was like, I can't, it's actually the least loving thing I could do for myself right now is to like weigh and measure my, like, I was like, you just chill out, like heal, (laughs) you'll, you'll get back. And I did, you know, and it was like, that was a lesson for me. Like sometimes we're really just doing our best, even though it doesn't look like it's our best, you know, and there's like a self-forgiveness piece of that, that I think is just, thing about diet culture is like every time we sign on to like 
you know, I'm not enough. I'm not working hard enough. You know, diet culture dies when we all accept ourselves exactly as we are, even if we want to improve. But that billion dollar industry thrives on us never being enough. The, the if onlys, you know? Yeah. And I think that you can still want to make improvements whilst coming from a place of acceptance, right? You don't have to feel like you're the worst thing in the world just to make progress, right? I don't think those oh. things are mutually exclusive. And it's probably part of the issue because like you said that narrative is what sells these diet plans it, it's what fuels places like weight watches and everything like that and don't get me wrong some of these places do a good job than for what people would be able to do left to their devices but you have to ask the question at what point is it doing more harm than good yeah and is there an exit plan i mean i don't it's hard to say like i love what you're i love everything you're saying but like i think what we can really drill down into what our motive is it's going to be a really different there's going to be a really different outcome, right? Like if I'm doing this because I don't think I'm enough and I think if I lose these 10 pounds, then I'm going to be enough. First of all, I want to say the research actually doesn't support that it will work, right? There's like a part of your brain, that that why part of our brain, great Simon, Simon Sinek, you know, that his, he talks so much about this. But if it's just for a quick fix, like it's not that quick fixes don't work. It's that the part of your brain you need to make permanent change works when your mission and your motive is a bit more profound. Absolutely. Like you said, you have the solution, but it's to a different problem. And you realize that you're actually just working on the surface problem and not the deep down problem. And if the surface problem is fixed, that's great. But if the deep down problem is never fixed, you're probably going to find this problem again, either in the same form or in a completely different form. But it's still going to be the same issue. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's And I've seen that happen. I can't, I mean, you know, I've been a, therapist for 25 years now, like, I can't tell you the amount of times that, you know, we've switched seats on the Titanic, right? And and maybe from restrict binging to restricting to orthorexia to obsession about weight, but sometimes even from like, sugar to alcohol to men, right, to gambling to shopping to all. And so it is really a, a spiritual thing in that way, which I you know, I'd always define spirituality as a shift in, you know, what you choose to believe and how you choose to experience the world. Absolutely. And we'll definitely touch on that later because it's a very curious part of your journey and intriguing part as well. But I want to touch on 16 to 17 years without sugar and flour. What does that... No, it's only it's only 13. 13, it's only sorry. 13. 13, my mistake. It is still a damn impressive, exactly. So I think I'll get to 16. I'm sure you will. And I'm curious to hear what does that actually look like on a day-to-day basis? And... Does that mean that you never have cake at your birthday anymore? What happens when you go to social occasions? Like, what does that actually look like in reality? So that means that I never have cake at my birthday, period. Um, it means I never have dessert. It means, like, never. Uh, it's been a beautiful, like, you know, I think in the beginning, my my two best friends, they were like, when I told them I was going to do this, you know, by the way, I... Of course they thought this, they've done nothing but watch me do a diet failure. So, you know, they were like, you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right, you know, and... um you know, I remember my 40th birthday and I guess I was maybe seven or eight years off of sugar and flour, maybe longer. They made a huge watermelon cake. It was the coolest thing I've ever seen. Like this enormous, with like strawberries. It was pretty amazing. You know, I I just, so yeah, I, I do not eat dessert. I don't eat, you know, it doesn't bother me. I also want to say I eat delicious food. Like I love what I eat and 
I think after a while, um, what felt maybe punishing started to feel protective, right? In the beginning, I was like detoxing and I hated my life and it felt like a diet and it felt really terrible. But then I don't know, it just, I didn't know that my, like, and I just say like, there's a part of me that, you know, I'm such a destructive binge eater that I sometimes can't believe I talk like this, but I can't believe how good I feel. And then I think that my performance is now kind of linked to what I eat. Like I can tell you, like I, I, um, I love a potato chip. I also love a Dorito and like Doritos are just, they're really poisonous. <laughs> I mean, they're just, and I know if I eat a Dorito, like I'm going to be in a bad mood. I'm going to be tired. I mean, I really can see when I put like that poisonous food into my, it's not that I don't do it, but put a point, put that poisonous food in my body. Like I'm just not performing emotionally, physically awake, you know, participating in life the way that I want to. I mean, so I don't know if that answers the question. It, 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 it doesn't bother me. It doesn't bother me because I haven't done it for so long. There's a really great, great quote that says, um, feelings fade over time if they're not re-stimulated. And the truth is I really haven't eaten dessert for a really long time. I've sat around a lot of dessert tables for a really long time. And just like, it just turns into sort of, as they say in my community, like not my food. Like it's, it, I, I'm neutrality around it. Except for like a vanilla saucer of ice cream cone with sprinkles on it. I'm trying to get to grips with it because of something that we are very, very proud of here at the podcast is not encouraging restriction in kind of any shape or form. And I can see this having utility for someone who's had some real big challenges, unless they need to, right? If someone has got, you know, an ethical reason because they want to be a vegetarian, then I'm not going to tell them to introduce meat because of they need flexibility and they need to have the access to all foods. What if someone's an alcoholic? Should they moderate alcohol? I don't see a place for it in their recovery journey initially. But if they want to implement it in their life on a long-term basis, I see no issue with that as long as they can develop a healthy relationship. I feel the exact same way about sugar. I feel the exact same way. So like, I think I, I agree with you completely, right? So I think what we know in the research is that 66 days is about the first time that your brain will see automacy, that your brain will say, oh, okay, here I am. So I think you can start to get a look. I mean, the research actually, I think, supports actually with alcohol, with well, with early, when you quit alcohol early, you can usually add it back. But I, this is what true harm reduction is, right? So this is where I'm a harm reduction therapist in every single way. What I think for me, so I don't think about that I restrict it. I think it, I don't want to add it back okay. in. Yeah, that makes sense. Right? So there's no part of me that sits at that table and says, oh, God, I wish I could be eating that Levant cookie like my sister is. I'm like, if I ate that Levan cookie, I would want 17 of them. I would not be present at this meal. I would be hungover. To There's no part of me that wants it. And I need to say, I think we under, I think when we try to have this idea of moderation, we really undersell the big food industry. And we really undersell the damage that we can do to our endocrine system. I'll just talk endocrine system. I won't even talk nervous system. But the damage that can be done with, with long-term binge eating disorder on the endocrine system is pretty severe. And um, and so, yeah, I do think like, 
And I encourage people if they're like, I want to go to France and eat macaroons. I was like, if you're going to go do that, please do that. But please enjoy them. Like, please don't eat them. Sit down. And maybe there's a case that you don't have to. I mean, I've traveled the world, not had a bit of sugar and flour. Well, probably a bit of sugar and flour. Because I'm not like, oh, my God, what's in your tomato sauce? Like, you know, I play the hand I'm dealt, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And that's what I'm trying to get at. I think that your community probably values this a lot. And there's a lot of people who are going to find this a super, super viable option. But I can just hear plenty of listeners saying, well, you know, I still want to have these foods. Maybe I don't want to have them on a regular basis. And also myself, if I'm completely honest. I'm someone who I feel has a very healthy relationship with food right now. I don't think it's always been that way, but I certainly do now. And I'm able to integrate things that wouldn't be typically quote unquote healthy per se. And I'm aware of, you know, that we're fighting a losing battle in the sense of like there's way more uh, marketing and promoting of these, you know, terrible foods, if we can even call them that, versus anything that's remotely healthy. Yet I still feel that there's a world in between where we can essentially try and get the best of both worlds. I don't think it's for people maybe who are, like you said, an alcoholic who who needs to go for that recovery, who needs to do the work. But I think that there's a large, large space of people who might actually think, actually, I can go through this for a period of time, but on a long-term basis, I'm not sure how this is going to work with my lifestyle. So do you have any thoughts on that? Isn't that what trips us up every single time in life is forever? I mean, I'm not, I don't, listen, like, I don't, I don't know if I'm going to be broken up with sugar forever. I know what I'm doing today. I think because I really actually think that addiction is a really tricky little animal and it's a disease that tells us we don't have a disease. And I think there's a part of this moderation world of like, oh, eliminating sugar. Like, no, how are you going to go to a birthday party? I'm like, I don't know. I don't do a lot of things like fine by me. And I, I hear what you're saying because I actually always have this fear too. Like, am I turning people away from me? But what I've seen with people who have been brave enough to try this out, especially people who have never been able to find any food freedom, any peace with food, that there is a, and, and I'm speaking not just of overweight people. I'm actually speaking even of orthorexic people, like, like that the noise in their head is so consuming that it makes relationships hard. It makes finding their path hard. I mean, there is real freedom for some people in this that I think that our great desire for moderation sometimes interferes with a really hard choice to say, you know what? I'm going to try to clean this endocrine system out for a second. I'm going to see what it feels like. And I don't, I don't encourage anybody to think of anything forever. That's the literally the dumbest thing any of us can do is say that this, because by the way, time is just a construct, first of all. (laughs) But second of all, that's the quickest way to get yourself into a bakery, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's what I'm feeling here is that when I love the approach of kind of the 66 days and seeing the results of that. And quite often when people have been so far on one side of the pendulum, I really do think it needs to be like swung back into the other direction in order to kind of find that equilibrium again. I find nine out of 10 people cannot just go to that midpoint from just making that choice. And as you mentioned, sometimes that idea of wanting to have a, you know, a little bit of balance, quote unquote, ends up being the thing that disrupts them in the long run because they can't quite see the results that they want to see. And then they end up thinking, oh, well, if I'm not seeing the results, I'm just going to go back to, you know, what at least was comfortable before, right? So I completely agree with that. And I think it's just the sense of knowing that that's been you for 13 years. I think that 
you know, the time away from it. But I think a lot of it, if it was my recommendation, would be the reintroduction if it was possible for someone to do in a somewhat healthy manner. I would just say, but I wouldn't say that I would never be audacious enough to make a recommendation. I would ask what they want. Like that's because that's what the research says, self-determination. Like if it really works for someone, I've just met so many people like this where they're like, no, I'm really good. (laughs) I like it like this. I wouldn't say that a mandate, because I wouldn't say that with alcohol, somebody gave up alcohol and they were just doing great being sober. I wouldn't be like, why don't we, why don't we just try like a martini just because we're at a wedding we're, che- we're cheersing champagne. Why don't you try that? And I and I think for a lot of people, and I, I think especially people who have struggled with their with the relationship with dieting, people who have been on a constant diet um, cycle, really have a, a, a predominance of of um, a messing with their endocrine system in a way that they're highly sensitive to these processed, these ultra processed foods. The and I have to, I don't know, a great book to read is is um. Michael Moss, the book Hooked, it's one, it's one of the best books because he wrote Sugar, Salt, Fat, you know that book. And then he wrote the book Hooked. And when he started writing the book Hooked, he said, I don't know. I thought everyone was being a little aggressive when they were saying food was addictive. Like, come on, chill out. And then the more research he did and the more like underground he got, he was like, oh my God, the, it is stacked so hardcore against us. And so I think that there's something about it that's magical, like, gosh, I just, all foods are equal. And, um, you know, this intuitive eating movement, which I love more than anything, but I think if you can't tap into your intuition, you can't intuitively eat. And what we know for sure is that processed foods and sugar sometimes can really, you know, hijack our intuition. So I think there's a, there's a lot of, what I think there is that if somebody tells you that there's one way to do something, run away. And that there's no harm in trying anything, right? Like if it doesn't work for you, go back to the other thing or do this. And that's where diet culture gets us so messed up because it's so one way, do it my way. This is the way, like fire everybody who tells you that. That's what I say. Fire every single coach that tells you this is the way to do it. Run. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm just trying to trying to speak from my listener's perspective. That's what I'm always trying to do. Like find an kind of opposite side of the story to try and kind of find a middle ground here. And like you said, I think a lot of people who would have experienced some joy with the concept of going through a time without, and I think that that's going to be the majority of people. I'm just looking at the long term, and like you said, it's not encouraging people to have a martini. It's just saying that okay, does life have to be with or without? Right. And rather than having it being so black and white, it's more a sense of kind of keeping that door open if it's the, what the individual wants. Right. Yeah. The most important thing, which I think you're talking about, which is something I talk about all the time, is this thing called the abstinence violation effect. And what the abstinence violation effect is, is that when we're so single minded about not doing something right, it's a perfectionistic look. Right. It's saying I don't eat sugar so that when I do eat sugar, it's in an abstinence violation effect way. It's in, are we allowed to, it's, it's in like a screw it, right? And so that when I'm violating my abstinence, I'm doing it in a way that's violent, right? And I'm going all out and I'm gorging and I'm this and it's, and it's like a big, destructive, painful event, right? And what we're saying here is, listen, if it's occurring to you that you want to try to see what it's like to moderate, go do that examine it. Self-examination is the most beautiful and important thing that we can all do. And if it works for you, that's so exciting. Look, you just learned something new. And if it doesn't, 
then you have this other way to be. It's a looser, it's a looser garment on the abstinence only model. I'm not an abstinence only person. I, I just actually, I don't think there's any research that really supports that that way works. I think a looser sort of that the opposite of abstinence is like slipping and looking and looking and seeing and then coming back. It's more of a fluidity I, is what and I recommend that to every single person I know. It's like, get curious, see what happens, plan accordingly. That's it. It's all about gathering data about yourself and seeing yeah. what works and what doesn't and trying to be as honest with yourself as possible. Because you might say, ah, you know, this trip to the restaurant every week is serving you really well. And then, you know, the account starts to pile on and your health goes in another direction. But it's so good for my social life. But it's actually just denying the fact that you haven't worked out another way to do that in a way that promotes not only your social life, but your health as well. So there is a little bit of denial there as well. So like I said, honest self-examination, I think is very, very nice. And I want to come back to the sugar side of things now as well and saying, does that mean all type of sugar? I can understand when it's, you know, factory made and it's chemicals and all that type of stuff. But what about, yeah, the fruits and the more quote unquote healthy sugars? Like yeah, no. Milk, yes. Cottage cheese, yes. Fruit, yes. Like, yeah, no, no, no. It's just like, you know, I try to keep like sugar as like the sixth ingredient in things when I read it, you know, and I, I, it just, it's, um, yeah, if that, and I, I wouldn't eat like teriyaki sauce, but I'm going to tell you, honestly, it's really, it impacts my mental functioning and my, how I feel. I think I felt really good for a long time that I don't want to be feeling different. Like if I ate teriyaki sauce, I'd be like tired. I'd want more. I wouldn't feel full. I'm just not interested in that anymore. Yeah, that totally makes sense. So there is a little bit of freedom around the sugars that we know are going to provide our body with nutrients and everything. Oh my gosh. So I eat brown rice. I eat grains. Yeah, I eat so much. I eat so much food. I eat potato chips. I eat Doritos. <laughs> and so coming back to those 66 days, I can imagine they're a really, really super important part of anyone's journey. What do those exactly look like? Is there a little bit more of, I can imagine, and not to use this word in a way that kind of makes it not super appealing, but I can imagine there would be a little bit more restriction in those days because like I said, swinging that pendulum to the other direction sometimes requires really being, you know, quite tough with yourself in terms of your parameters to create that change. Yeah, well, wait, exactly. When you're trying to like teach, you know, if you're, you're trying to like teach someone how to drive, you're not going to like drive most of the time for them and then you know, it's, it's, it's a new, it's a new thing to learn. So the way that I propose, I mean, I have to say, honestly, part of me proposes it all in. And then part of me proposes it as much as you can do. Right. I mean, I, I have to say, I think sometimes when you propose all of these things to someone, they're like, yeah, no. Right. And I've seen it work so beautifully with people where one week they eliminate sugar, one week they eliminate artificial sweetener one week they eliminate liquid beverages like it that they just kind of over time slowly but surely start to because that's the path that they're on and then there's some people that are like pull the band-aid off it's fine but I think there's just a couple of other things that science really that helps with science which is that number one um, ground grain flour is the exact same thing as sugar I don't know why we're kidding ourselves about that but like white flour anything ground up is really sugar. It's how your brain reads it. It's how your endocrine system reads it. But two really important things are, number one, that if you're a binger, the 
evidence-based outcome for binge eating, the thing that we treat people with binge eating with is this thing called meal regulation. I don't know about you, Elliot, but back in my day, I was like a squirrel. Like I literally was just eating all day. Like I would be on this podcast having like little nibbles of food. Like I just literally like squirreling it away all day. And I never had a sense of when I was full or when I was hungry or anything like that. And I was just eating and eating and eating. And then there's a lot of people who eat like camels, you know, they are at night and they're having emotional issues and, and they just sort of like the refrigerator becomes theirs. And then they're like, wake up in the morning. So, so hungover. And they can, so scheduled meals with time in between actually is what the evidence base for binge eating is. It's really important as it pertains to if you're deciding that you want to give up sugar, you want to give up anything or you want to heal your relationship with food. One of the most important things to do is to start to do like a three meal, one snack or three meals, three meals, two snacks, whatever works for you kind of thing. Because I always link it. Like I always make the analogy of like when you teach a baby how to sleep, right? You put them down at exact nap times and and that's how you teach a baby to sleep. And again, by the way, the other thing is like you let the baby cry through the night. So when I was a big night eater, if I was hungry at four in the morning, I'd have to remind myself that I wasn't going to die of starvation at least until eight o'clock when I ate breakfast, things like that. So I think that's a big piece of evidence that when we're really trying to heal a relationship with food, Meal regulation is like an underlooked at addition to any healing in a relationship with food. And then the other thing I want to say is like, look, if, if, if a part of your attraction to wanting to heal a relationship with food is releasing weight, then you have to look at your relationship with a scale. And, um, that's like its own podcast, but making some kind of decisions around how that relationship with the scale is going to be and sticking to it so that it's not like, oh my God, I feel so skinny today. I'm going to weigh myself or, oh, it was such a bad night, you know, that you decide, okay, Wednesday mornings is like when those are, I think other important things. And then I, one more, which is also artificial sweeteners are like the devil's greatest coup, period. Expand. Uh, well, I think the research that's coming out now is like, so, you know, it's really saying, well, it increases heart attack, it increases stroke, but when it comes to managing hunger, it really messes with your hunger cues. It messes with your taste buds. It messes with your gut health. And so I I think if you're really looking to reevaluate your relationship with food, I would actually say to give up artificial sweeteners before I would say to break up with sugar. I think artificial sweeteners are worse for a relationship with food than sugar is. Spend a, a thousand times as sweet as sugar. Like I'd much rather someone put sugar in their coffee than put artificial sweetener in their coffee if I had to choose. And the thing that the, that that industry has done is made us believe it's healthy, which is, I mean, I'm very hopeful given the research that's coming out right now. I'm very hopeful about that there will be more restrictions on that, at least in the U.S. Yeah, that was another question of mine is how do you see the world of food transforming in the future? What changes do you see being made? Because I spoke to someone last week. His mission was to transform food from being the biggest source of poison to the biggest form of medicine. And that was kind of his mission. And that's what he's all about right now. So I asked him, I was like, you're kind of fighting like a big battle here. There's a, like, you know, let's say 80% of the world trying to put, you know, all these type of different foods in your face and sell things. And there's an enormous restaurant industry that's thriving off foods that necessarily wouldn't be in someone's day-to-day diet. 
And then there's about 20% on the other side who are trying to promote, you know, going back to basics, essentially, and just kind of eating food that's going to fuel and nourish our bodies. So what do you see the future of food? How do you see it transforming in the coming years? I mean, I'm kind of worried about the future. I mean, I'm worried about the future in general. So I'm actually, I, I think I, I worry about like our, our ability to access food with what's going on, you know, in the environment and things like that. I actually, um, I, I, if I had a wish, I, I wish we would just stop producing so much. You know, I, I interviewed David Lustig a long time ago. He's a, he's a researcher out of UCSF. He's a, he's an endocrinologist, a pediatric endocrinologist. And he actually said that he thinks that most problems in would be solved if we started to tax, um, like tax sugar, if we start, you know, started to put taxes on these unhealthy foods. And um, he was just saying that he thinks that if you started to put tax, like a put tax on those sorts of, and they've done it in other countries and they've seen that it works. Uh, Mark Hyman always says that he thinks like, that he thinks of, of sugar as like a controlled substance. I actually think it's a great way to think about it. If we stopped, th- if we thought about it, just to, like even just like, 30 degrees differently and just started to think about it more like a luxury, more like a treat, more like this and started, stopped thinking about it as like a breakfast food. I think we would be improving our health like so significantly, truly. So I, I, I would think that would be my wish. I would just start. And, and I wish we had stopped producing so much food, to be honest. I just like how many more seltzer companies do we need? Yeah, it's a fair point. And it's, uh, it's a, not a super optimistic landscape. And it is quite often the uh, question I ask a lot of people who are looking towards the future. And <laughs> unfortunately, rarely are they, I think they're optimistic, but they deep down realistically know that things aren't changing very quickly. I mean, I asked again, another health professional recently, I was like, you know, sometimes it really feels like, especially in the industry that we're in, that like people are moving forward, they're making progress. Like we're seeing, you know, especially with my clients and probably yours, they're fixing their relationship with the food. They're seeing, you know, themselves go from borderline diabetes down to a healthy level, obesity and all those different types of things. But then sometimes you remember you're in, you know, the health and wellness bubble and then you look outside of it and then all of the studies are saying, you know, people are still moving in that run direction. So you mentioned kind of the sugar tax and the producing less. Do you have any other like big statement? Let's say we put you in office and uh, Molly was now the president. Would you make any other mandates? Well, I saw I live in the States, you know, and I moved I moved from New York City down to the south. And so I, I see a very different like side of our country here. And I, I think really to bring healthy food into food deserts, I think would change so much. I don't think people have any education about how to eat. I mean, I I actually, you know, that would be a a dream of mine if we could have there be healthy foods in it. There's areas where, you know, I could go to 10 minutes, I could be at a Whole Foods, a this, a this, a Trader Joe's, whatever. There's an abundance of food and healthy food and I can decide on my salmon and I'm so blessed and I could drive 30 minutes and I could be in a gas station where there is maybe a banana. Like that might be the only fresh thing in that whole place. And so I, I wish that there was a differential in privilege in being, being able to even access that food. You know, that's that's the social worker in me, though. You know, that's the social worker in me. We touched on children at the very beginning. And quite often, this always comes back down to the next generation for me. It's like, I think that, as I mentioned earlier, the healing that we're doing is just 
off the back of realizing that we're broken later in life than we might have wanted to be. But now, hopefully, we break those generational cycles. We have children, even if we don't have our own children, we have nephews, we have nieces. And obviously, we can make a difference with these. What would you say is the recommendation you would give to those parents who have got young children or those people who are around children a lot in terms of bringing them up and shaping them in a way that's going to be optimistic for their future from a nutritional perspective? Love it, love it. Like, number one, heal your own relationship with food and have neutrality around bodies, which also means it's a really hard thing. You look so cute. You look so pretty. You're so handsome because when we put high premiums on what our children look like, the sad part of it is that when we remove that warmth and we remove those compliments, it may, it, it, it puts it into the game that it is good to look a certain way and therefore it is bad to look a certain way. I've treated so many kids in my lifetime where the parents would say, we'll pay you $100 per pound. We'll pay you $1,000 per pound. And what I've had to explain to the parents is, listen, there's no way they're going to lose that weight because they won't lose. There's no way they'll lose that weight. The minute there becomes a premium on your good if you lose the weight, kid reads that like, oh, my parents' love is conditional. They're going to love me more if I am thin. And it puts a complete paralysis on a child. I've treated a girl, I treated her when she's 13 and I treat her now that she's 26. She came back to me years later. We're lit, all of our work is processing out that belief system. And so listen, it's the trickiest job in the world to be a parent, but I think having a lot of neutrality around food and body, neutrality, neutrality, you're lovable no matter what, there is no good food, you know, there's healthier food, there's less healthy food. I think it's great to have treats, but not all of the time. I think, you know, really being, because teaching moderation is actually the thing, but kids don't listen to what we say. Kids listen, kids watch what we do. Right. So if you're standing at the counter eating like, you know, eating your salad with a scowl on your face or eating the cupcake thing, you know, with the, the feeling like, oh, I'm being really bad. The best mind readers, they're like psychics. Kids are like psychics because they're always assessing their safety. Right. So doing your own healing heals generationally, like no matter what, if you struggle with food, the greatest gift you can give seven generations before you and after you is to heal your relationship with food, no matter how you do that. And just to go back to your point, Elliot, I have plenty of people who I treat to say, isn't it terrible for my children that I don't eat sugar? And I say, well, when you're eating sugar, you're, you're not awake, you're not aware. And, I, and explaining that to the kids is like a thing that people do, right? So I think self, I think healing and neutrality, it's, I'm telling you, this complimenting of the children, be really careful of what you're complimenting. You don't have to tell them. There's so many greater compliments than telling somebody that they're attractive. It's a very, very interesting point. And yeah, something that I've looked into recently, I'm not a parent yet, but I'm hopefully going to be fortunate enough to be one in the future. And sometimes when I do look at the things that have been told to certain children and yeah it's it's an interesting once you open pandora's box you really think about the impact of those words it's yeah, it's a whole nother ball game so yeah i can definitely definitely <laughs> agree with you on that one and molly this has been a fantastic and super interesting conversation and i want to ask you a final couple of questions and the first one i have is what impact do you want to have on the people that you work with oh my greatest desire is to help people to find 
their own internal like wisdom and magic and enlightenment so that they have freedom and can promote freedom to others, period. It's a beautiful and concise answer. I love that a lot. And where is the best place for people to find you if they want to keep up with the work that you're doing or if they want to check out your book? Oh, well, I mean, that would be amazing. Um, I think the best place to find me is my website, mollycarmel.com. I do a lot of things that just aren't that weight related. I do a lot of, I, I teach a spiritual fitness class. I do a lot of like, uh, one hour kind of round tables where we talk about forgiveness and acceptance because it, you know, it's really, it's about the food, but it's so not about the food. And so you can find all that at Molly Carmel. I'm big on Instagram at uh, Molly Carmel. And um, I have a podcast called what you're craving. It comes out every Wednesday and my book is called breaking up a sugar. And there's a second one coming up pretty soon called divorcing dieting. So stay tuned for that. Oh, well, it's exciting. We'll have to get you on for round two when that book comes out. Yes. Count me in. Amazing. Molly, thank you so much for your time today. I really do appreciate it. It's been an amazing conversation. Thank you, Elliot. Loved it. And that was the Simply Fit Podcast. I hope you gained a huge amount of value from today's episode. I feel inspired to improve your health and well-being. Be sure to search for Simply Fit in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcast from. And go ahead and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Also, if you like the episode, please don't forget to give it a five-star rating. I'd love to hear your feedback or any questions you have. So reach out to me on social media. You'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at Elliot Hassoun. Thank you so much for listening. And I look forward to talking with you all on the next one.